the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening. Welcome to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. Friends, family and co colleagues, uh, buried Dick Quacks today. Man, that when he ran around that 200-metre mark, the grit and determination with black singlet and moustache. They both had moustaches, didn't they? Him and Rod Dixon. I, I, I don't know, it's just burnt onto my memory watching that. Everything that's good about a running race. You kind of felt represented. All right. Oh, uh, you just thought you were going to beat him. You're going to beat that Lusseverin guy. But he couldn't get past him. Could not get past him, despite all that grimace and effort. Um, wasn't it a bit of blood doping they found? He, he might have got um, yoinked out, the Viren guy from F Finland, if it was in the modern day. So, it was a while ago. God, maybe it could even be 20 years ago. Um, I organised a reenactment of that around from the 200 metre mark, a reenactment with different people where Dick Quacks wins, and we filmed it. And I can't find it. I'll try and find it. If I do find it, I'll throw it up on Facebook or something. I'll give Ricardo a call. Uh, those who watch Sports Cafe will know what I'm talking about. Okay, coming up uh, later on this evening, Taranaki, lucky people. They're going full speed ahead with predator eradication. A lot of other provinces, you know, give it a go. Bit of a piecemeal here and there, but the Department of Conservation have said, you're on. Let's give you a whole ton of money. Let's see how you do. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating experiment. That'll be after 10 o'clock. Um, all the regulars are here. Um, let's rip into it, shall we? Science Hour this hour. Grant Christie, astronomy later on. But next up, science report with physicist Sean Hendy. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Physicist, Auckland University, Sean Hendy, also author of Silencing Science, joins us for Science Report this week. G'day, Sean. G'day, Graham. How are you? Good. How's the office? Uh, not too bad. Um, actually, I, I, my window was broken. The, the other day, and um, and someone actually turned up to fix it, which is always good. And Brilliant! So, yeah. Someone from the engineering <laughs> we've got, we've got department? One these, we've got one of these little, um, it's one of these uh, windows on a motor, right? So oh. when, it, when it heats up, it's supposed to open, uh -huh. um, and when it cools down, it's supposed to close, and of course, just in time for all this cold weather, um, it, it, oh. uh, the bolt sheared. Oh. Um, so I How? had to get man in blue jacket come and um, and change the bolt. Engineers. So, we yeah. need to salute the engineers Absolutely. of this world. They make stuff work. Yeah. So, um, And just a heads up, something I think you'd quite like, uh, uh, Winchester, Simon Winchester. Yeah, good, good author, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's got a new book called Exactly, How Precision Engineering Changed the World. And it's just full of stunning stories and people that the should be, you know, their faces should be on money. 
Yeah, right. But, but they yep. get forgotten. Yeah, it's unsung heroes yeah. of precision, right? Because it's not it's not hugely sexy. No, getting things exactly right. I'll tell you what, but it's sexy really, really when it works these days. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, that's tomorrow night. Shameless advertising for my own program between ten o'clock and eleven. Don't miss it. Uh, from your science inbox this week, uh, let's have a look at the neutron and how long long one is supposed to last. Yeah. So of course, ne- neutrons are part of the constituents of of nuclei that, mm. that make up atoms, right? So in a nuclei, you've got protons, which come with a positive charge, and you've got neutrons. Um, and the neutrons are kind of there to stick the protons together because the protons are being positively charged that would just repel each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so neutrons kind of act and help facilitate the glue that holds the nucleus together. Mm-hmm. But take a neutron out of the nucleus, and they don't last very long. Um, they, they, they will live for about 14, 15 minutes, um, and then they decay into... Um, a proton mm-hmm. and an electron, right? If you take a take an electron which is negatively charged and and glue it together somehow with a proton, you get a neutron. Um, and so that's stable when the neutron's sitting in a nucleus, but take it out and it'll eventually decay. Um, so physicists are interested in, in this partly, you know, because our, our our theories of nuclear physics, you know, they sort of seem to work really well. Um, apart from when they don't say anything. And one of, one of the one of the things that you know theoretically we don't we've got no predictions that we can make is around the lifetime of the neutron. Uh-huh. And this actually turns out to be really important if we're thinking about, well, uh, uh, the the origin of the elements in the early universe, right? When the universe was, was small and very hot and we were cooking up the the elements that, that make up the universe today, uh-huh. um, uh, the lifetime of the neutron was actually really important. You can imagine as nu- nuclei were forming that are going to go on to make atoms, which uh-huh. are going to go on to make us, um, you know, the, the time over which a, a neutron would stick around was quite important. And, and so what's been going on recently is we've been trying to nail this down. I mean, they're relatively hard experiments to do. Neutrons are kind of hard to work with because they're neutral. Uh-huh. So it's hard to, hard to steer a beam of nu- uh, neutrons around. Um, uh, and so there's been a couple of different experiments that people have been trying, and they've been disagreeing. Oh. Um, so might not sound like much, but if we're into precision, today's all yeah. about precision, there's been seven, eight seconds difference in these measurements. And that's that's actually fair, fair but that's about a 1% difference in the in the lifetime. Right. And so um, physicists are wondering, well, you know, it could just be something wrong with the experiments, or actually maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's some new piece of physics that's different in these two experiments. These um, machines that do this, they're kind of famously accurate, aren't they? One yeah. percent's a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's particle way physics, too big. That's crazy. That's a that, that's crazy difference, right? Yeah. We're use, used to measuring things. Mm. You know, they talk about six sigma. Yeah. So that's six standard deviations. That's that's tiny, you know, mm. fractions of a fraction of a percent. Um, so this is, a, for physicists, this is a big deal. Why aren't? Um, and, and so is it new physics? And that would, that would be pretty exciting. You know, we'd, we've talked from time to time about CERN, and actually CERN's, you know, we got the Higgs, but then nothing else happened. Oh. Um, we've been hoping for new physics from CERN, not a lot going on, but may- maybe these neutron measurements um, are where we might find evidence for, for um, yeah. you know, the next layer of, of explanation for what's going on in the Maybe universe. someone will find some dark matter behind the yeah, piano. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I think Grant Christie will also have something uh, to say about the neutron 
as it pertains to neutron stars. Yeah, you right. Think, if you think a neutron star is, is like a star, you're way off. Yeah, think it's again. Just these a, things, it's a these nutty things are freaky. Thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really freaky. I won't steal his, his thunder. Ha. <laughs> okay. Uh, a bit of a moral panic this week. No, a moral panic over the last decade, it yeah. seems. I don't mean to be particularly smart, but I thought... Really? Do you have to clean your house completely if someone smoked meth in it or something? Yeah. This is a bit of an overkill. Oh, absolutely. It's and and we're only just finding out how big an overkill it is this this week. It's and this is despite the fact there's been no scientific evidence about this. Right? The the danger of of the the third hand exposure to to meth. So if someone came and stayed at your house, for example, mm-hmm. um, and and smoked meth, um, then people have been paying large amounts of money to, to clean up uh, the residue um, or they've been in some cases evicted by Housing New Zealand and charged for the cleanup. You know, so th- and these cleanups are not cheap, tens of thousands of dollars that people have been charged and, and there's absolutely no evidence to support the harm in this. And, um, you know, we, Sir Peter Gluckman came out with a report this week which has is, which is basically said, that, you know, he can't find a single piece of evidence that's, that, that that would should make anyone concerned, yeah. um, and and the limits that Housing New Zealand, for example, has been applying and the Ministry of Health put out have been you know ten to a hundred times um, more than is justified by the science. So kind of a you know you know interesting to see how when science and politics collide, mm. because of course the you know the previous government was tough on drugs. Um, had a zero t- tolerance policy and this has kind of fed into these very stringent standards and has led to a lot of people suffering a lot of harm, not from the meth but from the, the clean-ups and the, and the financial costs that, that, that that's incurred. Yeah, uh, the government and bureaucracies are perpetuating a moral panic really, yeah, that, aren't they? That's right and, you know, and of course you know, we are you know, it's, it's alarming to, you know, if someone comes to your house and, and, and smoke drugs, it's probably not stuff that, that many people um, want to happen but then if you're told that your house is you know you can't live in that house yeah. and that actually well, it's does a bit make of an overreaction I'm, oh, someone absolutely. smokes meth in your house and you know it's not going to kill you no no absolutely so I mean and, and it's I think it's been driven you know because of course um, when when meth is manufactured um, that's a bit different, I that's suppose. That's a bit different. So first of all you're going to have more contamination. Yeah. Um, and then I think um, Traditional meth manufacturer has, you know, there've been other chemicals associated with that, and those other chemicals actually pose more of a risk. Yeah. But 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 smoking meth and the residue that's left from that it turns out not to be yeah. uh, particularly harmful. It's the current devil drug. All you have to do is cite it by yeah. name. No, absolutely. And there's a recall. And I think it just it kind of shows up a real weakness in our science advice system. Right. Um, you know that that I mean it's great that Sir Peter's come out and done this report now. But he's done it under this government, and and you know, Phil Twyford had to as we, when he was became minister, mm. two weeks in apparently he asked uh, Sir Peter Gluckman to do this report. But of course, it, you know, this has been a controversy for a number of years now. Yeah. A minister should have asked um, two, yeah. three years ago for this to be done, or the public should have demanded it. Yeah. And I think it shows this kind of you know we've seen p- perhaps the strength of that role, that Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor role, that he's actually had an impact this week. But it also shows the weakness that he's you know he's kind of restricted to the things that politicians want him to look at. Mm. Um, and so I've I've been an ad- advocate for a while now that we need more independence in these roles. And and so in my book Silencing Science, I wrote, wrote about how a parliamentary commission for the environment could be a way to to you know to to get that away from um, mm. from the government of the day. And allow anyone, uh, you know, 
Parliament to actually direct it. So so Phil Twyford, as member of opposition, could have asked Gluckman to do it right. in this different in this different model. Okay, um, and. Uh, yeah, uh, th- th- that moral panic thing, it can really take off. And this one's yeah. uh, um, uh, exacerbated by there's money in it for people. As you mentioned, yeah, really expensive right. to get this done. And I recall ads that were yep. running not that long ago saying, you've got to get your house tested out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And of course that stuff goes on all the time, but we don't often see government captured by it. Yeah, so yeah, it's, that, yeah. it's that unfortunate collision of this moral panic um, with, you know, people willing to take, make money off yeah. it. And, you know, I don't, and I don't know how, how informed the people who were doing the cleanups and the testing were about the health risks. They might have been as right. much in the dark as, as, as the rest of us. Um, but yeah, you know, you just you've you've got to keep your um, you've got to stay sceptical, yeah. right? And 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 ask for the evidence. Okay, uh, diffusion of ideas and science. Um, I suppose it's not that surprising if it's got Princeton beside it. Yeah, people go wow. <laughs> yep. And well, these universities do have their standards, but that's right. This is uh, an interesting thing about how ideas spread with that sort of prejudice. No, that's right. It's been it's been very interesting. So we're starting to get these big data sets now. Um, now that now that we're publishing our, our scientific papers electronically, right? So they're available on a big database, mm. and you can search these these publications, and you can start to use machine learning and statistical techniques to look at how ideas are spreading around, right? You know, when someone has a good idea at a university, they write a paper about it. Does that get picked up by other scientists? Um, and there's been a really interesting study. Actually, there's been a series of studies that have come out by a group in the US, and they've been trying to understand the effect of prestige. So if your paper comes out and you've got Harvard or Princeton or Yale on it, mm. does that make people more likely to pick up your idea? And perhaps not surprisingly, yes, <laughs> it does. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about this study is they've actually measured this effect. So there's a couple of things going on here. One is actually, and, and, um, uh, is, and again, this probably won't surprise people, turns out it's really good to get a Harvard degree. <laughs> so so uh, if, you, if you end up, if you do your degree, your doctorate, say, at Harvard, um, then you've got a really good chance of being hired at a kind of a next tier of university. Uh-huh. Um, and then or the becoming year, president, or becoming, well, yeah, t- <laughs> <laughs> but yes, a lot. I think a lot of a lot of U.S. presidents, not not yeah. not, not not the current one, no. um, but uh, a lot of U.S. presidents, of course, have have have, um, uh, have gone through one of these prestigious schools. Um, but the, but it kind of moves downwards. If you if you if you start off with with a degree from um, from somewhere that's not as well known, you're quite you know you're much less likely to move up. Ah. The uh, the 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 rank of prestige. Oh. So in, so in some it's sense, a university those, caste system. Yeah, it is. No, that's that's exactly what these guys have measured, and and they've shown that this has an effect on the diffusion of ideas because one way that scientific ideas move around and get picked up by other universities is by hiring, right? So when someone comes out, they do a PhD on the latest thing, you know, deep learning, artificial intelligence, um, and then part that idea partly will get picked up by other universities because they'll hire that PhD student to mm-hmm. come in and do research in that area. Right. And so this kind of this this prestige network actually has a big influence on the way that research gets picked up in other institutions, which is kind of, you know, so, again, 
not not surprising, but we often tell ourselves that this, you know, we're above this sort of stuff in science, that mm. the best ideas win. Mm. Um, but we're start now starting to sort of see, yeah, we're not quite as squeaky clean as we'd like to think. It's a very competitive thing, university. Absolutely. Yeah, when you're fighting, fighting for very small amounts of funding, yeah. um, you know, these things matter. These small biases can actually have a big influence. I've got a fun fact from uh, the interview with Winchester oh, and, yeah. and his exactly book. Um, it's, it's not quite as fall off your chair as the, if you lay your viruses right. <laughs> end to end, <laughs> which I repeat every week. Um, <laughs> the Model T Ford. Oh, yeah. Gosh. A hundred moving parts. Wow. That's all. Wow. Gosh. That is not many. No. Boy, when you think of it. Well, you know, any piece of machinery today. He's counted them. Um, uh, it was something like 35,000 in the car that he drove in to the driveway. Yeah, and if you, if you take into account the electronics, right? Yeah, well, and, they and, cut and it the, down, And the actually. pieces, right, yeah. 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 So, um, <laughs> gosh, yeah, we're, we're in a different world. We are. Uh, Sean Hendy, thank you very, very much, and we'll see you on the Scientific Rotate. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival, New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant, hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, last week we were, well, you were, talking about this backwards orbiting uh, asteroid. It shouldn't really be orbiting the way it is. It must probably come from somewhere else it's disobeying all the rules running the wrong way around the track and the athletic stewards are blowing their whistles trying to <laughs> get this person to run the right way so anyway um there's a nice little video we've got up on the weekend variety wireless which gives you a visual explanation of what the hell's going on yeah it's much clearer than you know it's hard to fully describe but basically this object uh, is extremely unusual in our solar system because it's actually orbiting the sun the opposite way to everything else. All the planets and everything else go around one way um, and this asteroid is going around the wrong way and it's orbiting in an orbit out near Jupiter, very close to Jupiter. And just by pure chance, it's probably why it survived. Normally you'd not expect it to survive for a long time, but this looks like it's been orbiting in the solar system for upwards of uh, 4 billion years or more. Because mm. um, when the sun first formed, it formed in a star cluster with a lot of other stars. So the stars were a lot closer together, so there was a lot more interchange of material that was orbiting one star jumping off and orbiting another one. So that was actually a relative, that's a high probability thing. It's a very low probability thing now. So the chance of us actually having a, an asteroid come from another star and actually be captured by our solar system and for it to survive for, you know, a long time scale is, is pretty pretty near zero, right. not, not totally zero. Most of them will be coming in too fast to be kept by the sun and stuff. So, uh, but, you know, in the early solar system, there was a lot of exchange, all the early um, uh, time when the solar system was still close in its birth nursery, it uh, would have been a relatively common okay. thing exchange. So it's not at all uh, weird that there c could be other ones. But this one stands out because it's going around the wrong way. Right, but if it was going the right way, we wouldn't have a clue. No, but because it's going the wrong way, and you say it, it's only survived because it's out there near the uh, orbit of Jupiter. I thought Jupiter was our security guard that stopped any of this nonsense and shenanigans of it going is, the wrong but way it, at all. There are sort of some uh, protected orbits out there. For example, the the, the uh, little gr animation shows you these. Uh, uh, 
um, clusters of asteroids that are actually orbiting around Jupiter, mm. and they are in two clumps because in those areas they're protected. They're those if if they drifted out of those areas, Jupiter's gravity would soon sort of make the orbit unstable and throw it out. But uh, those are those are called the Apollos. So there's a one there's two clumps of Apollos that Jupiter has trapped. They're like a a protected zone, if you like, of orbit, uh, orbits that they have. And you'll see that the one going around backwards, the alien one, is uh, actually goes through those clumps each time. And its orbit's tilted up relative to the plane of Jupiter's right. orbit as well. So it's um, it's just found a little niche, a little spot where it's safe. Yeah. And it's been probably like that, they estimate, for you know maybe sort of four billion years or more. Right, okay. So it goes back a long time. It'll be a very interesting object to visit in the future, possibly. Cause, yeah. You know, it'll be one that you could actually conceive of you know, sending a, a, a spacecraft to. Rather than the other one that we discovered had come from another solar system, we can't chase it. It's, got, it's bloody gone. It's going too fast, and you yeah. don't get any real warning of them coming. No. Uh, because, you know, you only find out about them. And the only reason we saw that one coming through is that it happened to come relatively close to Earth. Um, but they estimate that there's thousands and thousands coming through our solar system at any given time. Spotting so, them, though. Spotting them and catching up with them. I mean, technically in the future that'll be possible. Mm -hmm. They'll have to kick up the speed of spacecraft, and they'll be able to do it and... Be ready but uh, certainly the one out by Jupiter is going to be there for a long time and you, if any spacecraft going to visit Jupiter in the future might be able to sort of mm. do a close flyby and get some pictures of it. Well, it's amazing it has survived for all that time. You imagine going the wrong way round in the Indy 500. It's, it's <laughs> not a good high survival well, technique. that's right but you've got to realise that when you see these graphics that, and you see these big clumps of stuff that these things are going through they're actually a long long way apart i mean you wouldn't even see, if you were going through those clumps of those apollo asteroids where they're they're those clusters of areas where these things inhabit they you wouldn't know they were there if you're going through the asteroid belt you know it's often portrayed as you're in a spacecraft and these things whizzing by you and you're ducking and diving it's all very exciting but in fact you have to go enormously out of your way to encounter something going even through the asteroid belt yeah. and once you're out of the asteroid belt then you know you're down to you're extra lonely you thought lonely. you were lonely before <laughs> that's, now right. Like now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right okay uh, another link we've got up on the weekend Variety Wireless webpage. You can explore exoplanets. A lot have been found. Art artists make impressions of these things um, and you know, use a lot of imagination and speculation. But what's this to explore exoplanets thanks NASA? Yeah, this is a, a little database that NASA set up with a lot of uh, stuff to do with exoplanets. I don't know if it includes all of the ones that they've known from, say, like the Kepler Space Telescope. There's something like four and a half thousand exoplanets now known um, and some stars have multiple planets uh, and what the graphics people at NASA have done a nice little thing way of flicking through this uh, collection and some of them a number quite a few of them you can actually go and and visit the planet and uh, show it on your screen in 3d as you sort of what you would ex might expect to see what they think that planet might look like they can usually tell whether it's like a um, you know a hot dry one or it's a icy cold one um, uh, and also some of these planetary systems have multiple stars they're not just one star like our one with one sun they've actually got sort of two or four stars and so you can actually 
you know, sort of pan around the sky and get a bit of a feel for that. So you can go and explore that. It's fun. It's not just made-up stuff. It's based no, it's on it's based reality. on what's known. I mean, yeah. obviously, people all know a lot more in, you know, another in decades to come, but at the moment, mm. uh, it's a pretty good guess of roughly what you'd expect to see from the surface of one of those planets. Okay. The misbehaving asteroid and some travel bureau stuff for exoplanets from NASA, they're both up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. You can go and have a look at them there. Now, um, a close stellar encounters that have mucked up the solar system. We've spoken about this uh, before, and it may explain a few things, but um, how many we've had, apparently the estimate is, is surging. Yes, well, this is more a matter of discovery because now we have the um, Gaia satellite uh, telling us, you know, the, with very high precision, the motions of stars around the part of the galaxy where the sun is. So they can, that, that, this is a satellite that was launched by ESA in 2014, 2013, and it's, it's now returning its data. So it's making ultra-precise measurements of the speed and direction of all the stars within, I mean, like, it's, it's one and a half billion stars. Mm. And so it's finding stars in the close sort of neighbourhood of the sun and giving much better precision measurements of the motion of those stars. So this means that theorists can sit there and now calculate when those stars are likely to come closer to the sun. And why that's of interest is that the sun is surrounded by this cloud of comets that were a part of our solar system, but they're you know, but maybe half a light year away from the sun. They're, we can't see them out there. We know they're there because they're near, every now and again one comes past the, into the inner solar system and goes out again. But there's probably a trillion comets in that. They, they call it the Oort cloud. But if a star, passing star comes close to the Oort cloud, those orbits can be disturbed. And when that happens, then comets can start, to, their orbits can degenerate and they can fall in towards the central part of the solar system. And so a flock of comets come through where the planets are, right in the middle near the sun, and there's therefore a, an elevated risk of an impact or something. And so, so there's a lot of interest in trying to relate extinctions on Earth caused by big impacts and close encounters with stars in the past. And at the moment, they can only really predict with any accuracy uh, five million years into the future and five million years into the past. As Gaia goes on and makes more and more precise measurements, they expect to be able to extend that back to, you know, possibly, you know, 50 million years or something like that. Mm. So we'll be able to sort of start to encounter. We can't go back to sort of like Precambrian dates as, you know, as, as, too much time's passed, mm. but Gaia is going to greatly increase it. So what they're expecting to see is that uh, this isn't increasing the number of these encounters with stars, which happen on a sort of scale of millions of years. So, you know, there's no threat to humanity right at this moment as far as we know. But they certainly uh, will be able to sort of give some idea of the uh, dynamics of what happens when these things come close and, uh, and you know, possibly relate them to recent extinctions oh, that, okay. or impacts that have happened because we see impacts on other bodies like the Moon and Mars yeah. as well and Venus possibly. Was the famous late heavy bombardment that gave the Moon all its crater things, was that something like this or was that caused by something that, else? That was debris as far as I, I certainly understand it. That's debris from within our own solar system. You don't need... Right other stuff from doing that. So that was caused by Jupiter moving around and scattering 
what was a bigger asteroid belt. Oh, so right. when Jupiter, in the very early solar system, Jupiter migrated inwards and outwards uh, relative to where it is now. And in doing those manoeuvres, it disturbed the asteroids in, that were sort of in orbiting the sun and scattered them. And that, they scattered material. Of course, there were trillions of asteroids, um, a good many of those cause the impacts that we see now on the moon and so most of the impact craters you see on the moon date from that event right and the earth got pummeled as well but a lot of the sites of those impacts has been um, destroyed by plate tectonics the earth's got a very active crust and weather system and and the evidence of those big impacts that the earth would have taken has been eroded but on the moon they're there and you can right. see them in binoculars but it was a domestic affair rather than yes exactly one. all right uh, the Magellanic Clouds, you can see them on any clear night. The south is lovely for them, uh, and they are like companion dwarfy galaxy things outside our Milky Way. Yeah, so the Milky Way is a big spiral galaxy, and the Magellanic Clouds are two dwarf galaxies that are uh, looks like they're gravitationally caught by the Milky Way, so that's still not totally certain. But basically, again... Um, you know, astronomers are now on the cusp of really untangling the sort of the real history of the Magellanic Clouds and predicting what they're going to do in the future. And the survey that's just been published has been done in Australia with a very wide um, field view camera that can go extremely faint. And it's so what it's doing is picking out stars. So when you look up at the Magellanic Clouds at night, and if you go out at night, uh, most people are sort of probably familiar with them, a dark night away from the city, you pretty much can't see them at all. You can barely glimpse them in Auckland, but if you get out of or if there's moon in the sky, like, you know, we just had the full moon. Um, but if you go out to a dark site, then you can't miss them. These are like two detached pieces of the Milky Way, and they never set in New Zealand ever. Uh, so the Southern Hemisphere is the ideal place to see them. And the, the one's brighter than the other, and that's, you know, it's, it's slightly bigger, and it's also closer to us of the two of them. Um, but the question is, you know, how are they interacting are they going to? Are they just passing by the Milky Way and you know heading their way, or are they going to be caught and absorbed by the Milky Way? And that's really what this uh, survey has been trying to sort of understand. And uh, so that what they've been able to do is see that. Um, you, so when you look at it with your eye, you see the bright bits, but when you look at it with a special camera from Australia, they can actually see there's a lot of stars that are in streams that have been pulled out from those galaxies. And by mapping those, they can actually wind time back and see what's been happening in the past and gives a much better idea of how these two galaxies are, are moving relative to the Milky Way. Huh? And that's going to be hugely improved, of course, with the Gaia satellite we were just talking about. It's also measuring stars, not only in our galaxy, in our neighbourhood, it's measuring a lot of stars in the Magellanic Clouds as well. And some of these... Um, ones that have been pulled loose from the Magellanic clouds and are strung out in streams. So, um, so you know, they're, they're predicting at this stage that although it's sort of early days yet that these things are, uh, the, these two dwarf galaxies are actually bound uh, to the Milky Way uh, mm. and sometime in the distant future they'll merge, but that merger might be trumped by the merger of Milky Way and Andromeda, which is scheduled for about 5 billion years in the future. Right. So as far as we can tell, these things have been uh, attached, gravitationally bound in some way to the Milky Way for the last two billion years. That's a new number, and that, that sort of set the sort of the time scale. So galaxies are in a dance of death, but the dance takes a hell of a long time. Right. And so, you know, the Milky, so the Magellanic clouds will get all mixed up with the mergers of 
the and huge Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way, which are sort of comparable big spiral galaxies. We won't be here to see it, but nice thing computer modelling now will, is getting really good at showing you what these things, they can accelerate time and so you can watch these things on YouTube, merging galaxies. I've got an idea for this, what we should call this segment, Dancing with the Stars. There we go. Very good. Oh, Very I good. couldn't resist it. Um, okay, an unprecedented detail in a pulsar, 6,500 light years from Earth. What detail do you get from a pulsar? Well, that's but right. It's just I a mean, spinning uh, neutron star that goes... That's right. I mean, so so what is a pulsar? A pulsar is a result of a... It's, it's the core of an old supernova that went off bang. And so the supernova went... The star exploded. Massive star got ran out of fuel. Uh, the core collapsed and... You know, there was an enormous detonation. All the outer bits went flying out, producing things like the Crab Nebula, that sort of stuff. And But the core gets compressed into this tiny little space. And so the core, that's the thing that's left, the neutron star, is something about 20 kilometres in radius, something, or, or no, about 20, 12 or 15, I mean, that, that sort of size. Anyway, it's, it's the size of a, a, a city the size of Auckland, say, but it's got the mass of the sun crushed into that spot. Mm. So it's ultra-dense. We can't make material that dense on Earth, and so uh, understanding the sort of fundamental behaviour of matter, uh, a lot of it we're learning, or will be learning, from the study of the mechanics of these pulsars. Um, so this one is uh, a pulsar that's uh, spinning... Uh, on its axis really fast, 600 times per second. So Whoa. you imagine something that's the mass of the sun, the size of Auckland, and spinning 600 times a second on its axis. You know, you're talking about sort of weird sort of physical world that you could, you, you, your brain can't really get around. So it's... And pulsars also have a, a, a beam of energy coming out through their... Uh, magnetic poles, mm. which don't necessarily line up with the rotational axis. So the thing can be rotating about one axis, but the magnetic field is not aligned with that axis. It's the same on Earth. The Earth's magnetic field isn't aligned with our... Yeah, but Earth. this stuff's made a different stuff. Well, that, that's different, crazy. But anyway, so it's not, there's a sort of an analogy there. So, okay. And, but the other little catch with this one is that it has a companion. It has a brown dwarf companion, which is a small st star that's not really big enough to become a, a true star. So mm. this is like a, an oversized planet, if you like. And uh, it's providing material. It's getting caught by the magnetic field of this pulsar, which is incredibly intense, and it's dropping onto the, magne onto the magnetic poles. And when it hits the surface, it makes these really bright spots on the surface of the spinning ball. So what we've got is a spinning ball 600 times a second, and there's these two bright spots on it. And radio telescopes can tell you when each of those spots rotates into view. No, so they by can't. That's, those that's going too fast. How do you so know? This is well, nuts. No, the radio, radio guys can do this. It's amazing stuff. And so um, they, and also because the gravity is so strong, it actually warps the light. They have to allow for the general relativity effect of the warping of light, just like the. Isn't that lovely? All that sort of stuff. So you know, again, Einstein's been proved right yeah. again in the study of these. So the nice thing about this one is that because they've got such exquisite detail, and in fact the measurements they're making, they, they, the authors sort of point out, it's equivalent to me being able to measure a flea on Pluto. Okay, so See, I told you they couldn't. <laughs> they're making shit up. No, uh, that, that, that's really? Cause, yeah, because this thing, this pulsar is six and a half thousand light years away. Mm. And the precision that they're measuring down to fractions of a kilometre, that, that's the equivalent of, uh, 
uh, flee on Pluto's side. So that's this exquisite precision that pulsars allow you to do. The pulsar astronomer is amazing. They're what they can extract out of these radio signals just boggles the mind. So if the flea on Pluto was um, emitting a radio signal, they could find that too. Yeah, if it was at the right frequency. Right. They, 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 you know, that's the sort of scale. I mean, it's just to give you a geometric um, scale. Sure, sure. Pluto's a long way away and you know, you know it was just a little blurry disk until fairly recently. So, uh, so it's a fascinating... Um, survey um and this one also could be one of the more massive pulsars known so there's a limit you can't have a pulsar that's heavier than about um or much above the mass of the sun mm. uh, the exact amount is a little uncertain because we don't understand the physical nature of the interior of these things so we can't do experiments on earth that make matter that dense yeah. and so it's probing a whole new realm of physics that our physical laws we don't have physical laws really for it and so these these are test beds of, of that'll drive the advancement of physics long before, you know, way beyond what anything the Large Hadron Collider can do. A, a sort of a semi-fun fact would be if we could make a teaspoon of neutron star, you couldn't hang on to it. It would fall to the centre of the Earth, yeah. come out the other side, and then fall back up and it would just bounce until it got sucked in by the core yeah, of the I Earth. Yeah, I forget what it is. I mean, the densities are enormous. They're... they're they're actually higher than the atomic density of an atomic nucleus yeah. because the, uh, in fact, the structure inside an atomic nucleus in our bodies, the atoms in our bodies have got protons and neutrons, but all that's crushed out in the core mm. of a neutron star. So the neutron star is like one huge, great, strange, bizarre particle. Yeah, yeah. That's the mass of the sun, and inside there, there's physics that we don't understand yet. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Let's go local, and there's particularly local interest from uh, Professor Cathy Campbell, a New Zealander that's involved heavily in Mars, where to go and what to sniff for. Uh, we're looking for signs of life probably four billion years ago. Yeah, NASA's planning a, a launch of a, vehicle, a, a new spacecraft uh, to Mars uh, called Mars 2020, so it's going to be launched... Uh, you know, in 2020 and land on Mars six months later, and they're looking at sites to land on Mars because its role is to try to find some sort of evidence of, pr you know, primordial life that might have existed on Mars in the past. Nobody's seriously expecting it to be now. It's, you can't rule it out. It's not zero chance, but certainly in the past, Mars was a different world. It had lakes and everything. And so they found this. there's a lake bed on Mars. It identified this and studied it from the orbiting spacecraft in great detail. Um, that's got lots of muds and clays sort of that have dried out, and so they're very fine rock, if you like. Um, and it's also rich in iron and um, and, and iron and silicon, I think. Yeah, silicon. And so the, in that situation, and this is what Cathy uh, Campbell tells us about, and she's a world expert in this area, is that those sort of conditions are where you could preserve microbes. Um, th those sort of rocks don't really exist on Earth at that age anymore, so we can't look at Earth life very easily back that time because very few rocks on Earth are that old. The crust you know, melts them and pro you know, they get sucked back into the interior of the Earth and so on and reprocessed by plate tectonics. But on Mars there was no plate tectonics, so you can just go to this place and find rocks that are four billion years old right sitting there that haven't been touched have uh, and dig down you know, a foot and stuff and you'll, you'll get this, these exquisite things. So this 
this spacecraft is going there to try to, and they're trying to now identify the best sites in this zone that uh, to land a spacecraft, take samples, which it'll keep, and then a future mission is going to go to Mars and bring the samples back. So at the moment, this spacecraft is collecting samples. It's like a moving geologist moving around, taking samples and collecting them and storing them to be in, in a container that will then be returned to Earth in a future mission. Exactly how that's being arranged, I don't really know. Wow. But that's, that's the broad plan. So this, this, this object, uh, this is like sending the geologist there, but no way to bring him home. Right. But you find his bag <laughs> maybe in another right. five or ten years and bring his bag back of uh, samples that have been collected. I hope it goes well. I've had terrible troubles with couriers. <laughs> really have. Yeah, so it's, uh, okay. yeah, so it's very um, interesting. And so it, it seems to offer the best possibility. I mean, things like curiosity. I mean, it's been on the surface of Mars for ages. Um, 2,100 days Curiosity's been there and it's travelled 18 kilometres. And it was success was three months or something, wasn't it? No, no, it? this is Curiosity. This this was intended to last a little longer. Oh, I think this, is a bigger, this is a bigger right. one, Spirit Sorry. and Opportunity. Yep. Yeah, but they're, you know, but they're, but opportunities still working. Mm. But Curiosity, uh, so, you know, so it moves very slowly across the surface. It's doing great stuff, great science, but, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't have the tools on board to really do any right. sort of deep studies of and collect these sort of samples. And obviously, if they see a bone sticking out of a rock, they'll be, be excited. Great, but yeah. you know, they, they haven't done that yet. A wristwatch. <laughs> oh yeah, even better. <laughs> okay, uh, oh, I do want to make time for this. Um, let's talk about the impossible EM drive. Now, this has been seriously tabled as a way to get stuff around it, like a spacecraft propulsion thing, but there have been critics that are pointing that it doesn't and won't work. Yeah, so, so basically what this is was an idea that somebody suggested that if you have a sort of a metal sort of chamber cavity uh, and you have um, something that makes microwaves, then they argued that these microwaves bouncing around inside this cavity cause a net motion, a net force. Now, the, you're not really so this this provided so the opportunity to, to think about a, um, a, some sort of propulsion system for spacecraft that didn't need to carry fuel. That's really the big problem. Fuel. When you, you if you want to travel interstellar, then you know there's no gas stations out there. You can't fill up again. So what you're looking for is some little magical box that doesn't need fuel but still gives a force. Now the little catch is that that violates Newton's third law of motion. That every force there's an immediate and opposite mm. reaction. So basically, you can only get... So if, if you're not actually applying a force, you can't actually get something mm. out of it. You mm. have to put some energy into the system in order to make that work. And uh, so... But NASA's been testing these things nevertheless, uh, these ideas. Uh, but a university in Germany has now done a test where they set up one of these, built their own one and set it up, uh, and... They made ultra-precision measurements of its motion. They had it in a vacuum chamber and they turned it on. And, yes, they, they got a motion. And they thought, well, OK, that's pretty cool. You know, maybe something's going on here. Uh, until they probed it a bit further and then found that even when they turned it off, they still got the motion. <laughs> so that means that the motion that they were detecting uh, was, uh, they believe, is due to interaction of the device, the machine, proto-engine thing yeah. uh, with the Earth's magnetic field. 
Right. So now they're going to repeat. So they think that that's simply the Earth's magnetic field is exerting a force on it. That, of course, won't be out in space, won't be any help to you. And so they, what they're doing now is to try to get a... Um, uh, a shield that they can shield is stuff called uh, using electronics called mu metal, um, and uh, that's a metal that uh, sort of basically blocks magnetic fields. So if you've got sensitive equipment, you put mu metal shield around. So they're going to shield this thing with a mu metal of some sort, and prevent the Earth's magnetic field producing that, and then see if what happens. So at the moment, it certainly looks like the previous tests that have been done have just been really due to interference. And the force that the, you get from this thing is tiny. That's the other thing to, to realise, that they're tiny, tiny forces. But that doesn't matter if you're travelling for years because right. if there's a little bit of thrust, then gradually you'll get faster and faster and faster and faster and you'll get up to sort of, you know, 10% of light speed after a few years. Eventually. And, so, and you go places with that. Right. But it doesn't look like it's going to be the goer. Okay. Uh, Grant Christie, thank you very, very much. Good seeing this week, I hope, and we'll talk again next week. Yeah, thanks, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Yeah, just another reminder, the links alluded to in the astronomy section are up on the Weekend Variety Wireless uh, webpage and just a reminder there's a Facebook page as well nice little community you can have your say uh, post stuff you know how it works ask Max a question uh, Max will be up answering those questions you've tabled in the next hour it's nine o'clock